Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for leading us in that song. Ooh, I don't know about you, but I, I actually would love to sing that again. That was a good reminder for me this morning and a declaration that my fear doesn't stand a chance. So hopefully we can take that in and take that throughout our day, that declaration um, of whether we're saying it to ourselves as a reminder, whether we're saying it to the spiritual forces that try to attack us, that our fear doesn't stand a chance, but we have to own that. Okay, I'm sorry, it's not my time to preach. <laughs> Ooh, that song stirred me up. I can be really awkward, can I? <laughs> I'm going to embrace that this morning. It. And it's because I know Matthew, so he'll let me be awkward a little bit. Love so Pastor Matthew, Dr. Matthew, Dr. Matthew St. John, uh, I'm going to read this so I won't go off script. Uh, he and his wife, Krista, live in the Minneapolis area where he is the senior pastor of New Hope Church. Having served as a pastor for over 20 years, as well as having represented Christ in over 30 countries around the world, Matthew nurtures a deep passion for sharing God's word so that all who are spiritually hungry may experience and proclaim the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Matthew and his wife have two daughters, one of which is currently a student, Katie. And so if you were in chapel yesterday, Katie was one of the two students who ministered to us um, in song, so glad to have Katie here. So Matthew also serves uh, on the board of Transform Minnesota. I get to serve alongside him, uh, and so that's my context of knowing him. So what I know is that he is a man who not only knows the word here, but knows the giver of the word and puts his faith into action. And so that's what he's gonna talk with us about today. So let's pray for, for Pastor Matthew. Lord, I'm grateful for how you've already started our time together. I'm thankful for the way that you used your son, Jonathan, to minister to us and with us through song, helping us to remember who you are, but in that helping us to remember who we are because of you. So we pray this morning for Pastor Matthew as he ministers to us from your word. And Lord, I also pray for all of us who will be hearers of your word. I pray that we would be a rich soil today, fertile, ready to take in the seeds that are planted. And we pray that we would take part actively in nurturing and allowing what seeds are planted to grow and develop and bloom. So thank you in advance, Lord, for what you will do this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much. Very grateful. So I have a burden that I want to share with all of you. And it is an invitation that for some will be easily acceptable, and for others it will be something that, that perhaps you've never thought of. I want you to be in a position within the next half hour that when you leave here, you will have this sense that God would want you to change your world. That you will have a sense that you're not going to be able to breathe if you do not see God unpack within you 
a burden for the world in which you find yourself. A world that might more and more and more look very different than the one you've seen in the past. I want you to be in a position where you will leave here moved to change the world. The Lord Jesus was standing in Naz Chapel. Not the one across campus, but the very first one in his hometown in Nazareth, a synagogue. Regularly, he would go there to worship. He was faithful to this cause. He wanted to worship God and he wanted to fellowship with his community. It was his habit. And on this particular day, Sabbath day, there he is in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, as I said. And lo and behold, he's asked if he would get up and read from the prophets. You see, part of the regular service in the synagogue was a reading of the Torah and the reading of the Nevi'im, the prophets. Jesus was asked to read from the prophets. And so according to the historian here in the scriptures, Luke, Luke chapter 4, according to the historian, Jesus stood up and he took the scroll of Isaiah from the attendant there. And he began to carefully unroll it, looking for a very special passage that he clearly had in mind. And he got to what later we would know is Isaiah chapter 61. And then having unrolled it, he looked out into the audience. And, and this is what he read. It's recorded in Luke. You can just listen here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. According to Luke, at that point, Jesus rolled the scroll back up, handed it off to the synagogue attendant, and he sat down in the proper posture of a rabbi in those days. And having done that, this is what he then added. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then Luke adds this little commentary. He says, all the people spoke well of Jesus. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And what were those words? What Jesus did by quoting the prophet Isaiah... What Jesus did by quoting the prophet Isaiah was introduce or reveal to that audience a vision from the holy God of the universe, a vision whereby the gospel that is coming is for the spiritual life of a person, but also for the material well-being of that person. And this was something that they celebrated. They got it. They understood. The text tells us that they marveled. They thought he was gracious. They loved what he said. It resonated with them. And we know, we know that this good news, this gospel that Jesus unpacked in those few minutes in that synagogue does have a spiritual dimension to it for sure. And it's got a material dimension, a relational, social dimension to it. And we know that from his statement about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor because that is Hebrew shorthand for the proclamation of the year of Jubilee 
When those who are enslaved are set free, when those who have lost their property regain their property, when those who have been economically marginalized are replenished and refreshed. This is part of the complex, full, holistic good news of Jesus Christ. And he, he shared it right there in that audience. They ate it up. And it's no small wonder that he gave it attention because God has a heart for those who are in the margins. And so it is, so it is that, that as Jesus is reading it, he's talking about the good news for those who are impoverished. Well, it's not good news to them unless somehow they have hope beyond their poverty. He spoke about the good news for those who are held captive. It's not good news for them if they remain in captivity. He spoke of the good news for those who are blind. And it's not real good news if they can't see either physically or spiritually or mentally or emotionally or socially and so forth. He spoke about good news for those who literally, it says, are bruised by life's calamities. That's what the word oppressed there in that passage means. And it's not really good news that those of us who are so beaten up by life can't find a way forward that's life-giving. And so this is what Jesus presented. This is what he presented. And as I said, the crowd receives it. Why not? Who doesn't want the poor to be lifted up? Who wouldn't want the blind to see? And who really wants captives to be in shackles all of their lives? And who really wants those who are bruised to stay bruised and wounded? Well, of course, the audience is going to welcome this. And after all, after all, it bears some authority. You see, Jesus, as he's quoting that passage from Isaiah, begins with the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, today, this day, this has unfolded. What the people in that synagogue understood was that passage was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And Jesus is in effect saying, he's shown up on the scene and I am him. And the audience perhaps intuited that. And they were receiving that with awe until, until Jesus took the time. Now listen to me, friend. Until Jesus took the time to explain that this good news is not just for the people that look like the folk in that room. He went on and he shared a story that scandalized everyone in that audience. According to Luke chapter 4, verse 25 and following, Jesus said these things. I tell you the truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but to whom? A Gentile, in the city of Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman of all things, in those days that itself was scandalous, to a widow Talk about marginalized. And suddenly you should expect that in that Jewish synagogue there's a little bit of tension rising. Because what Jesus has just said is the greatest prophet in our history didn't go to our own people in their time of need, but went to somebody who is considered an other. And as if that's not enough, he goes on and he says this. There were many lepers in Israel in those days. In the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them 
None of them was cleansed, except what or who? A Gentile, a military man, a general named Naaman, who was from Syria of all places. And do you know, moments before Jesus said this, according to Luke, the crowd was like, oh, we're marveling at him. We love what he's saying. Look how gracious he is. But when Jesus pointed out that it was the burden of God that the good news be about the sharing of power and position and privilege and platform with people that look different than the majority, then all of a sudden the crowd rises up and they want to kill him. And they take hold of him and they drag him out of the synagogue to the cliff there on the hillside of Nazareth and try to throw him off the cliff to his death. And it's not the first time, or the last time rather, that we would see such a thing unfold. You see, here's this Jesus, and he is crucified, and he rises from the dead, and he ascends into heaven, and he sits in session with his Father in the heavenly abode on behalf of his people. Praise God for that. After that, the church develops. It rises up. Days go by, months, years, and suddenly we come to a famous missionary named Paul, the Apostle. And Paul the Apostle had some Gentile friends. In fact, much of Paul's time was spent with the Gentile people. And Paul decided to revisit the city of Jerusalem. And he wanted to take with him some of his Gentile friends to Jerusalem. Some of his fellow Christian disciples of Jesus. And they go to Jerusalem, but Paul's not a dumb man. Paul knows he cannot take them into the temple precinct. That's not allowed. But... The rumors abound. Paul has shown up and he has brought his Gentile friends into the temple. It wasn't true. I mean, this is hashtag fake news. But everybody believes it. Everybody's listening to these rumors. And because they believe it, the crowd is animated and they're looking for Paul. And when they see Paul, what do they do? They seek to beat him up and maybe, if they're lucky, kill him. Kill him. And if it weren't for the Roman soldiers that happened to be on post nearby, they would have succeeded. But the Romans pulled Paul away from the rabble-rousers in just the right moment. And as they're pulling him away, do you know what he says to them? He says, please, please, please let me speak to the crowd. Can I just say something? Call it, call it the favor of God. I don't know what you would want to say, but those Roman soldiers, sure. They relented and they released him and they let Paul stand up in front of hundreds, if not thousands of Jews there in the temple courts. And with that, Paul shared a story. Paul unfolded his own story. I'm like many of you. I grew up in these hollowed walls. I studied here and there. And I butchered Christians. And I made my way to Damascus to kill still more Christians. And as I'm on my way to Damascus, lo and behold, a light shines brightly into my face, knocking me on my back. And the Lord Jesus appears to me. And Jesus says to me, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I want you to understand, as Paul is sharing this to this captive audience, he's telling the story of Jesus. And you can hear a pin drop in the room. Everybody is leaning in and listening to Paul as he's unpacking his words about Jesus. Nobody seems to be bothered about Jesus. Jesus seems fascinating. Jesus is intriguing. People are drawn to the story of Jesus. So far, so good. It's only when 
The Apostle Paul says, and you know what he did? That Jesus on the road to Damascus said to me, Paul, I'm going to call you to go to the Gentiles. And as soon as he said that word, according to Acts chapter 22, verse 22, the crowd erupted into this great turmoil and they reached for Paul in order to tear him to pieces and kill him right there in the temple precinct. And again, the Roman soldiers pulled him away just in the nick of time. What is it about the idea that we could take the good news of Jesus and leverage it by sharing power and position and platform and privilege with people that don't look like us, that it would cause some in the majority to want to kill the messenger. What is it about that? This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of Paul. And what I discern, friend, is this. That we are scandalized. Listen to me. We are scandalized when we're confronted with the reality that the gospel has a demand upon us. The good news has a demand upon us to share everything that we are with those who aren't like us. And if we do not do that, we're falling short of God's standard. And if we do do that, it means we have to have a posture of surrender. And quite honestly, more often than not, most of us never want to go there. But this is the beating heart of the holy God of heaven and earth. And that is why Jesus proclaimed this message. His very first, listen to me, his very first official message in his earthly ministry. Sure, he had spoken to many friends and family. He gathered disciples around him. But when he stood up in that synagogue, in that chapel in Nazareth on that day and said, the spirit of God is upon me to proclaim the gospel to those in the margins. When he said that, that was his first salvo before the audiences of the land regarding the purposes of God. You see, it's the beating heart of God. We see it. We see it in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 25 and following say this. Just listen carefully. I'll start with 26. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we see a summary of it a chapter later. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 where we find these words. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to quote work it and keep it. And those two words work and keep. Listen to me. Listen here. They're very important. For the word work has this idea of causing flourishing within the created order. And the word keep has the idea of safeguarding it all. And we're not talking about pandas and redwoods alone. We're talking about fellow image bearers. No matter their color, no matter their culture, no matter their language, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity. We're talking 
every person that God has created. It is our task to cultivate flourishing among them and not to make them feel threatened, but to make them feel safe and to guard them well. That is the call of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We see this mandate in the church where the Apostle Paul, the very one who was you know, nearly killed there in the temple, later, later he is in prison. Why? Because of his fellowship with Gentiles. And he's writing to his Christian friends living in the city of Ephesus. And as he's writing to his friends in Ephesus, he lays out the mandate for the church relative to this broad and holy gospel cause. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul offers these words. He says, he says to the reader, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And with that statement, we are reminded of the profound spiritual implications of the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, all of us have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of this sin is death. But God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Bible tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the vertical dimension of the gospel whereby God can take an awful wretch like Matthew St. John and redeem him through the blood of Christ shed at the cross. That is the vertical dimension. It is the riches of Christ of which Paul speaks in verse 8 of Ephesians. But then he goes to verse 9 and he attaches it to the import of verse 8. And in Ephesians 3 verse 9, the apostle Paul adds, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And that plan is what? Well, according to the previous chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, it is that people of different ethnicities, particularly Gentiles and Jews, come together because of the blood of Jesus Christ. As one. And according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, they are equals. Can you say the word equals with me? Ready? Equals. They're equals in the eyes of God. And they form a brand new society, a brand new humanity. And it's called the church. And there is no, no inequality in the mind of God with regard to his beautiful array of diversity within the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is why in verse 10 of Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul goes on and he says, you have to understand, this is so a watching world can see just how powerful the gospel is so that the watching world can see how incredibly good our God is. If God can take people that the world says should hate each other and be separated and bring them together as one unified force there's something about the power of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. And that means that that gospel has import for even me. That is the whole thrust of Ephesians chapter 3. 
And that is the mandate of the church. It's also something we see. It's also something we see in the New Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 22 verses 2 and 3 tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, there's going to be this tree of life right there in the center of the city. And it says in those verses that the leaves of that tree will cause the healing of the ethnicities. And so from the very beginning of time, we see this call to cultivate flourishing and to safeguard such among people. We see the church's mandate to not just proclaim the vertical riches of Christ, but to testify to the horizontal reconciling power of Jesus Christ and his blood. And we see that at the very end of the ages, it will still be important to God that the ethnicities in all of their variety experience profound well-being. Thus the word healing there in Revelation 22. This is the mandate for every, listen to me, every follower of Jesus Christ. This is the mandate to live this out, to promote this. It's what motivated Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Many of us think of him as merely this activist, but he was a minister of the gospel of Jesus. And he understood when others weren't understanding it, that the gospel of Jesus had this vertical dimension, but it also had this horizontal dimension that the Bible unpacks. And this is why he pressed and pressed and pressed and pressed for people to get hold of the opportunity to speak justice and truth into a society that was unraveling because of the deception that separated people that God would have come together. This is what in part motivates me as a white man who's a ministry leader. Not long ago, I was standing in Dr. King's office at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. It was one of those surreal moments when I'm in that office all by myself. Nobody else is around. The crowd I was with had already gone. And I'm standing there by myself. I have my hand on his desk and I'm looking at some of the artifacts in the room. And I remember praying to myself, or praying to God about myself, God of heaven, give me the courage that this man had. God of heaven, help me to have a vision, not just for the vertical, which we evangelicals are so good at, but to understand the broader biblical reality of a horizontal reconciliation that is rooted in the blood of Jesus. Help me to lead well, just as this man did. When I was in eighth grade, when I was in eighth grade, I was sitting in a classroom and the teacher got up and walked out. There was one person of color in the room, an African-American lady, young woman who was a classmate of mine. She's sitting about two desks over from me. As soon as the teacher walks out, suddenly, suddenly three guys get up from their seats. And they stand up and they reach into their backpacks and they pull out these white sheets and they put them on. And they go over and they start walking around her desk. Let's say this is her desk. And they just start walking around, very taunting, very menacing, chanting names to her that we should never say, especially a white person, never say. And as they're doing that, this rage started growing inside of me. You know what I did? I sat there like a boy. And I should have stood up like a man. I sat there like a boy. Part of it was I was scared. I'm a kid. I'm an eighth grader. And these guys have been bullies to all kinds of us. 
But I remember walking out of that room later that day thinking to myself, I was a boy. And God of heaven, I want to be a man. I was a boy. But I want to be a man. And I never again want to be in a position where somebody is being marginalized and mistreated and I am silent. Because that would be a violation of the very thing that Jesus proclaimed when he stood up in the real Naz chapel and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to those who are in the margins. And that's what motivates me. And dear friends, I want it to motivate you. Not because this is something easy, not because this is something about white guilt. This isn't about white guilt. This is about being one who fulfills the original mandate to bring flourishing and to safeguard for the sake of the good news. Not so that we can just have this sense of, of uh, feel-goodism, but because it is the beating heart of a holy God. And we don't need to do it in our own strength, for God himself says, the Spirit of the Lord will be upon you. The Spirit of the Lord be upon you. The Spirit of the Lord can be upon you. Trust Him. And carry out this mandate. And change your world. Heavenly Father, dismiss us now with this sense that you have called some of us, if not many of us, to be bearers of a holistic gospel that changes your world, changes our world. Use us. Use us, O oh God, and find us faithful to the end no matter the cost, and all of God's people said together, Amen. go in peace.